0: We are in John chapter 1 and we're at the very end, we'll be finishing the chapter today and we're going to come across a unique little phrase, truly, truly is the phrase, truly, truly or verily, verily or surely, surely or amen and amen depending on which one of the many translations you have but Truly, truly. What does that mean? Well, I don't think the meaning's too far off. We, in our normal context, we, we repeat things we want to give emphasis to, don't we? We say things, we say things double when we want to give emphasis. If uh, you know, two kids are out on a playground and one little girl, she goes, ooh, it's very cold. Her friend might go, ooh, it's very, very cold. That means you bet. Right? She, the very, very, is gives emphasis. We don't just wish somebody a jolly Christmas. We wish them a holly, jolly Christmas, right? <laughs> we give emphasis, we double it up. If I was going to dare somebody to do something and the dare wasn't going to work, I might have to do what? double dare them right the repetition gives emphasis i can keep going on right if we say please and someone doesn't want to get it give it to us what do we say pretty please with sugar on top that's a triple emphasis you're serious then right we do this we repeat that's that's what's happening here in in the scriptures is Amen and amen are truly, truly is a mechanism that John uses. Actually, he's the only gospel writer to use it with Jesus. He's the only one to sort of grab that language of Christ and sort of put it in front of us that Jesus would, when he comes to something he really sort of wants to stamp as important, he would say, truly, truly, or it's literally amen, amen, is what he's saying there. It gives emphasis 25 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says this. And here at the end of the very first chapter, and it is a very natural end of a first chapter. I mean, this is a kind of a turning point. At the very end of this entire mark is the first time he does it. So what he has to say is probably important. So if we look at the text... In John chapter 1, what we see, let me give a little bit of a a background. Over the past uh, section of chapter 1, Jesus has been picking up disciples. So he got Andrew, and he got another disciple, and then he got Philip, and then he came across Nathanael. And when he saw Nathanael, he said, Now there's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel Nathanael looks at Jesus and says, How do you know me? And Jesus says, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I knew you. And we don't know exactly what is unlocked in Nathanael when Jesus says that, but it matters because Nathanael immediately replies in belief. He says, you truly are the son of God, the king of Israel. So whatever Jesus said there sort of releases Nathanael into his belief. And we pick up here in verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly. So here it is. You ready? I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, I'm going to make a wager. And my wager is that they did not have the effect on you that it was supposed to have had. In fact, I think probably for most of us, the language that Jesus just used there, heaven open, angels ascending and descending, is so spiritual or Old Testament, or symbolic, or whatever you want to call it, that actually the opposite effect happens. Truly, truly, it's important, and then it's sort of divine spiritual speak. It's almost instead of a truly, truly, we would put a yada, yada, that many of us read and we get there and we're just, and the end of the chapter. Next subject. And this is because the way Jesus is talking here is he's speaking, I'm going to say, in a very ancient way. He's not speaking uh, in the way we've, we've come to think. And, and, I, and I want to spend time. We're going to slow down today. We're going to spend our whole time on one verse. This whole idea of seeing heaven open and the angels ascending and descending. What is happening here inside of this truly? Truly. And as we sort of set out there, I just want to talk about how we think because the way we think is different than much of the way the people who were sort of carrying the written word with them as it it was being compiled and written. The Hebrew tradition that was carrying the word thought very differently from the way we think. So we in the West think very rationally, very structured, very systematically. We like to connect the structure, and and have logical precepts. We love terms. We have so many terms in the church. We have so many terms, most of which are not even in the Bible. I am Trinitarian. It's a term. Are you dispensational? Are you covenantal? Are you Pre-trib, are you a cessationist? Are you complementarian? Are you a credo-baptist or a pedo-baptist? Do you believe in transubstantiation or consubstantiation? All of these words, they're not in here, but we have built a framework, a, a scaffolding around the faith. A sort of, and I think sometimes we think the scaffolding holds the faith up. It doesn't. And that's not how they thought. We have created a sense of, uh, we, since it's the way we think, it's just from the Greco-Roman to the Enlightenment to the Reformation to now, it's just it's how the mind of the West has been designed. We like bullet statements with terms. That's just not how the Hebrew people thought. They didn't think with terms. They almost never used terms. You, I, you could read the whole Old Testament and come away going, I've thought about it. I don't know if they have any terms. Any systematic terms. They have titles. They have stories. They have pictures. They have symbols. They have promises and prophecies. That's what they have. It's not untheological, it's highly theological, but it's packaged very differently. What they do is they grab an image here and a story there and they connect them. And in that connection, there's meaning. So we have terms about Jesus. Jesus is fully man and fully God. That's, our, that's, great. that's outside of the word. It's true, but it's scaffolding. They have a title, he's the Prince of Peace. Now which is more theological? I'm not even trying to compete them. I'm saying that is not an untheological statement. It's a title rife with meaning. That's how, that's how they develop their thought. And that's what's happening here in the 51st verse. I want to show you one quick example, and then we're going to dive in, spend the rest of the time just un- uh, unsewing or unraveling the, the second one. The very last phrase of the chapter says. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Do you see that? The Son of Man, which is strange coming from the Son of God. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the Son of Man like 25 times. Only in the Gospel of John, Jesus very comfortably refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, if you're wondering, that's weird, and it does sound weird. It sounds weird to me too. Because he's the son of God. And in fact, if you want to be technical about it, he's not actually the son of a man. But he came from Mary, but he did not come from Joseph. So it's even a little bit more quirky. So you have to, but it's not a term, it's a title. So if you go back into the Old Testament, what you find in the Hebrew thinking was, they refer to a man as a son of man. A son of man a descendant of Adam, okay? We do the same thing when we say human. Human sort of hails from the meaning of of man. You're of man. Son of man is human. That's all it is. It's just their way of saying he's man. Ezekiel is a son of man. Ezekiel is the best book to see this in. In fact, it may be the only Old Old Testament writing That's in the Bible where you see this. There's other writings around the scriptures that show this. But in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is always referred to by the Lord as son of man. And this is a good example you see on the screen here. This is one of nearly 100 in the book of Ezekiel. 93 times Yahweh approaches Ezekiel and says, son of man, tell me this. Hey, son of man. Hey, human. Hey, guy. I got questions for you. That's Ezekiel. So, I, son of man is a person. And then something happens. In Daniel, Daniel is, Daniel chapter seven, he has a vision. And I'm gonna read you the first part of this vision. And you can be disarmed in the first part. You can just read along and listen. I just want you to think, what does this sound like? Okay, just if you had to hit a beeper, you know, and say it's this. So you don't need to think deep here, okay? This is what Daniel writes in Daniel 7. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands, you see the repetition? A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and books were opened. What's that sound like? I think it sounds like the great white throne judgment. It's judgment. And in fact, there's two or three sentences in prose right after this where God on the throne judges, or the Ancient of Days on the throne judges these beasts, Okay, these terrible beasts, and throws them in the fire. Okay, And then about, it's about two lines of text, and then you get to another part of his vision. And this is the part of the vision I want you to see. I saw in the night visions. There we go. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Who's that? It's Jesus, right? Now, we can say that because we have the story of Jesus. We have the revelation of John. We have other prophecies. We go, oh yeah, that's Jesus. But you see in here this character, which was very mysterious. It was like messianic mysterious to the Hebrews. They didn't have the story of Jesus. They were before all of that. All of they, had, they had was this mystery son of man here. Okay, so a son of man is a man. One, in the Daniel 7, one like a son of man coming, that's a particular son of man. That is the son of man. Not just any old a son of man, the son of man. There was, there's a sense among the Hebrews, among the Jews, that we are all son of man, but there is a particular son of man one day who will come, who will establish his kingdom and every nation, tribe, and tongue of people will worship him and his throne and his throne will be established forever. He's the son of man. Jesus in the gospel of John has no qualms calling himself the son of man. It's an uncomfortable claim. He's the son of man. See, we have terms. They fill their titles. They fill their pictures. Okay, let's look at the bigger one. Maybe you mark this spot. We'll come back to John 1. So whether you need to stick your bulletin in or crease a page or whatever it is you do, do it. And go to Genesis chapter 28 which is like 28 it's actually page 28 for me so it's it's in the beginning Genesis 28 we're in the story of a man named Jacob so God the big story of Israel of the Jews begins with a man named Abraham God called his name is Abram at the time but God calls Abraham and gives him a really special promise that God will bless Abraham and that through Abraham all the world will be blessed. Abraham has a son Isaac and that promise and that hope is passed to Isaac. God confirms it with Isaac. Isaac has two sons. He has Jacob and Esau and Esau is his older and he likes Esau more. Esau is like a man's man. And so Isaac prefers Esau over Jacob. And Jacob, through deception, steals the blessing. He lies to his father and steals the blessing that was to go to his older brother. So the promise of God that was given to Abraham and that Abraham passed to Isaac and God confirmed and that Isaac was going to pass to Esau, Jacob sneaks in deceptively and steals that blessing. He hoodwinks his dad When everybody finds out, Esau eventually says something like this. It's not long before my dad is dead. And when he is, I'm going to murder my brother. I'm going to murder him. And his mom overhears it. And Rebecca's favorite, that was his mom, Rebecca's favorite was Jacob. And so she gets nervous. She goes to Jacob and she says, I think it's really good time for you to go away and get married. Why don't you go away for a long time and get married? Go back to the land of our ancestors, back to Haran, sojourn there, and maybe like 20 years from now, your brother won't want to murder you anymore. That's the thinking. So they send him away, but truly he's running away, right? He's running away. So you have a brother, and Jacob, Jacob not only stole the blessing from Esau, but he sort of finagled the birthright, which is like the, the material... Inheritance, he finagled the birthright from him in a somewhat underhanded way too. So Jacob has taken everything from Esau that Esau had. But now he's running away with none of it. He's running away by himself with nothing but words that have ever been said to him. And he's leaving the very land of promise that he was given in the blessing. And he's about to leave the land of promise. He's, he's, he's come up from a place called Beersheba, which is in the south. And he's up, he's about to leave the area and he gets to a place and it's time to lay his head down to sleep. And this is what happens. I'm gonna start in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set taking one of the stones of that of the place he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep and he dreamed and behold there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold the angels of god were ascending and descending on it and behold the lord stood above it or him And said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Jacob, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. He ends up naming the place Bethel, house of God. So let's just look at Jacob for a second. What does Jacob see, okay? If in the ancient Hebrew thinking, they convey theology with images and stories and narrative, let's see it. Let's daydream what Jacob dreamed, okay? So Jacob lies down and he has this dream. And his dream is of a ladder or a stairway. Some of your Bibles may call it a stairway. We don't. It's translationally ambiguous. Some mechanism of ascending and descending. And it's anchored. It touches the ground, it says. In fact, the word place shows up like five or six times in this writing. It touches the ground and the place. And it extends all the way up and it touches heaven. And there's angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And then it says, and Bibles will translate this in various ways, it'll say that God was either up there, standing up there, or it will say beside him or standing over him. I think I lean towards the idea, the decision in translation that the Lord Yahweh is actually standing there With him. That's what he sees. You you see it in your mind? You don't need to be right, you just need to have a picture, right? A living picture in your mind of what it looks like. Ladder from the ground all the way to heaven. Angels coming up and down. God is standing there. And then Jacob hears. He hears Yahweh speak. And Yahweh encourages him right? to this frail, fear-filled man. God bestows upon him the very promise he just stole. The blessing that he deceptively stole from his dad and from his brother, God places his signet on. You'll be a blessing and through you, all the world will be blessed. I will be with you. I will not abandon you. You, My promise, Jacob, is now on you. This is just as Jacob's about to leave the land of promise. The Lord is saying, listen, the promise is you're not leaving the promise behind. The promise is following you, and I will remain with you until I've done everything that I promised I would do. In this dream, this lonely, landless, runaway is encouraged by the Lord. You're not forgotten. You're not abandoned. The Lord is not adjusting his behavior based upon your behavior. The Lord's plan, and if you read the blessing, it's clear. The Lord's plan is ultimately to bless humanity. And he's gonna do it through Jacob. And then Jacob wakes up. And then he thinks. So we know what he sees and we know what he heard. And here's what he thinks. He says, surely the Lord is in this place. Right? The Lord was here. Surely the Lord was in this place. And he's filled with fear and awe, it says. And he says, this place is surely the house of God. This place is surely the gate of heaven. and he ends up calling it Bethel, which means house of God. So that's Genesis 28. Now let's go back to John 1. Okay, remember, they fill up their images with meaning in theology. They, the basket in which the thought is carried are these stories and these images and these titles. That's how they carry these things. They don't need terms. So that just... Carry everything we just said in Genesis 28 right back here because Jesus is about to invoke it or evoke it, right? Truly, truly, 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Truly, truly, Genesis 28 is what Jesus is saying. Except that it's a little bit different. In Genesis 28, the story is place-centric. It's about the place. The ladder, it says, touches the earth there in that place is what it says in Genesis 28. It says that he grabbed a stone in that place and made a pillow and he laid down there in that place. And then the Lord stands in that place and speaks from that place. And when he arises, he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And he calls this place the house of God. And he says that this place is the gate of heaven. The whole story in Genesis is about that place. But in John, it's not. And John, he steps into it. He assumes it. He says, you'll see heaven opened and angels ascending and descending on what? On the son of man. He's, who is the house of God? Not where is the house of God? who is the gate of heaven, not where is the gate of heaven. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the way, right? In, in Genesis 28, the, the, picture, the picture for the ancients is that somehow heaven came down and connected to earth through this little ladder. And the connection point is this place. And Jesus and this truly, truly steps right into the place and says, actually, the touch point of heaven to earth is me. I am it. If you want to go to the gate to heaven, you have to pass through me. If you ever want to be in the house of God, it's not a matter of where you need to go, it's to whom do you go to. That's what he's saying. I'm not a son of man. I am the son of man. We use terms, they use images. And even then, John is unique. The other gospel writers see the writing. When the New Testament's being written, it's being written just as the thinking is starting to shift, right? Greco-Roman thought is in the land. Plato's lived and died. Aristotle has lived and died. They died a long time ago. This thought is deeply entrenched. So that you get a letter like Paul writing Romans. In Romans, you find the terms. This is why the church loves Romans. Romans. Because it's written to our head. It's not because it's better. It's, it's writing among a kind of thinking that we're more compatible with. But, so when the gospels are being written, you, you, you can see some of the gospel writers are like Matthew. Matthew is writing to the old ancient Hebrew mind. So how does he begin his gospel? Here's the gospel of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, genealogy. Because the genealogy is theologically significant. The genealogy genealogy is a basket that has the promise and the prophecies. But you get to people like Mark and Luke. And they say, hey, I'm going to tell you the story about Jesus, the Messiah. The anointed one, the Savior. I'm going to tell you the story about Jesus. And here's how it happened. And it's just, we like that. In fact, I'm going to read you the opening verses of Luke. This could have been written yesterday. And in fact, there'll be words on the screen. I just want you to highlight the sorts of words we love, okay? Why this means it's true, okay? This is what the Western mind says. It must be true because we said compile. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. <sighs> we are going to get an astute description of Jesus. You know, moment after moment, it, Luke, a Greek educated doctor is writing to us in our language, OK? And so he's going to say, here's, and he eventually will say in about the next two verses, Jesus is the Messiah, and I'm going to show you how. So he's going to say, here's my theory. Now you decide. You derive it from the narrative. You look, that is not what John does, okay? We're at the end of the chapter of John. So Mark says, Jesus is the Messiah. Now here's how it happened. Luke says, we're going to compile stuff for you, and you can decide that Jesus is the Messiah. I just want you to appreciate. I'm going to read for you all the titles that John has given us in the first chapter. He's the Word. The Word is with God. The Word is God. Everything was made through him. So he's creator. He's life. He's light. The Word became flesh. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. He's a rabbi. He's the Messiah, which is the Christ. He is him of whom Moses, the law, and the prophets wrote. He's the King of Israel. He's the Son of Man. He's the house of God. And he's the gate of heaven. And he... He's all of that. John just dumps on us every. It's almost as though he paged through the whole Old Testament to find every single picture, every single image, every single idea, every single basket that could carry any sort of meaning of the hope that we have, and he dumps them there, right? He's the Word, but he's not just the Word, he's a rabbi. But he's not just a rabbi, he's the King of Israel. And when I say the king of Israel, I mean he's our light and our life. But when I say life, I actually mean that he became flesh because he's the son of man. Not a son of man, but the son of man who is also him of whom Moses and the prophets and all of the law was written about, which is the same thing as saying he's our gate of heaven and he's our house of God. That's what he's saying. He's not giving you any time to derive it. He's saying, (sighs) It's as though someone walked all the way around the mighty mountain of Jesus and told you every scene he saw. And he's putting it at your feet. He's saying, you are going to have to decide why you're seeking him and why or why not you're following him. He's not just a rabbi. He is the son of man. He's not just a wise teacher. He is life and light. He didn't just come to save us. Everything that has been made was made through him. He doesn't just know God. He is with God and he is God. And it's not as though he's disconnected from you because he became flesh and dwelt among us. That's who Jesus is. This Christmas we're going to talk about a baby in a manger. You're going to see images it's about the only politically acceptable picture to continue to draw in our culture it is a harmless infant in a manger. I just encourage you to pick out John 1 and just remind yourself of all the other things he is. Because we can grow numb to the glory of Christ by living in just one little label. May we worship all of who he is. Let's pray. Lord, we're entering into a time when we tell the quiet, gentle story of the birth, Lord, the nativity. There's a term. And yet we know that when the shepherds saw you, there was a brilliant light and a mighty host of angels saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace on men on whom his favor rests, Lord. It wasn't quiet. May we, in our quiet worship, hear the loudness of the Scriptures, testifying to all of who Jesus is. And I, Lord, I ask forgiveness for the small ways that we sort of pick the dimension of Christ we get along with. Or, Lord, may you give us a greater sense of His, of your breadth and your depth. Lord, I lift up those here this morning who don't even know what to make of Jesus. I pray they would not feel bullied towards belief, but rather that they would, they would see, as John puts in front of them, the size of the one of whom he writes. We ask, Lord, for belief, for faith that works, for faith that moves and follows you. That's what we ask for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.